if you want to turn in your Bible, you can turn to James chapter 5. Wow. But one of the things that I've thought about a lot, there are certain topics that I can teach on that are near and dear to my heart, because I know what it is to struggle with things the Bible talks about, and the topic of today is one of those. And this is really an option. I'm not going back into two weeks that's been sharing uh, of our testimony of the last few years. But it's directly related to all the events that occur. And one of the things that I know is that for all the events that occurred with us, I, the older I get and the longer I live, the more I realize that's not abnormal. In other words, we all have an illusion of what normal looks like, and then you think and you look around and you realize there aren't any normal people in the world. And so the extraordinary is really just life. This is what it is. And so even in our circumstances, with everything that we've gone through, at the moment we were going through it, I know there are other people that had the same struggle here at Lakeside. There's nothing unique about trials of life and challenges of life, and that is abundantly clear just from our observations. You look around at your family, your extended family, you look at the people you rub elbows with over a period of time in a church, you think about your workplace, but beyond that, not only is our personal experience testimony to this fact, that's what the scriptures say. This world is full of trouble. Period. We don't have any means to avoid living in a sinful world while the Lord gives us life and breath. Which means bad things continually happen. Now, bad being a normal usage, not the biblical usage, things that we perceive to be bad are just part of the reality of life. And in this room, we, we have a fairly wide age gap in terms of... Um, you know, the Trotter boys are at the early end of life, and there's some of us, no names named, that are on the other end of life. And what you see over time is that we all face trials. That's not a newsflash, that's reality. One of the interesting things, though, as I have lived longer and longer as a believer, and this is something that has played out over the last... I realized, I think I was saved in 1993, so sometime, and I don't know what day, but sometime in that year, so that would mean, is that 20 years or 30 years? 20 years. My wife, the math major, just mouthed it to bail me out. So I've been saved almost 20 years. And one of the things that is a continuing struggle is responding to trials in the correct way. Now, the topic that I'm going to be launching into this morning is dealing with that big picture issue. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I think it's an issue that bears on every single one of us. The issue is patience. The issue is patience. Now, if you want to look in James chapter 5, I'm going to read a couple of verses that begin at verse 7. But the whole book of James is dealing with the issue of how to live out a Christian faith. The, the statement of the book, the purpose of the book, and I talked through the entire thing years ago here in Faith Builders, is prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So the old, whole focus of the book is living obediently, but we know from the earliest verses of the book that it's 
obedience in the context of living in a sin-filled world. Because the beginning of the book deals with the general principle, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. No question mark, there's no if. There's an assumption that every single believer is going to encounter trials. And our lives are testimony to that. We don't ever know what the trial is going to be. We don't know whether um, our health is going to suddenly fail. We don't know whether one of our kids is going to suddenly fall off the tracks or get ill. We don't know if our material properties are suddenly going to disappear. We don't know if our job is going to disappear. But whatever the case, we know that those types of issues are going to be a constant in our lives. And so, from the perspective of dealing with those things, the word patience comes to mind. Now again, I assume that everyone in this room has had at least a single experience in their life where they were not patient. I think it goes beyond a single experience for us, though. And I'm curious, I don't normally ask open-ended questions where I really want an answer from you, but this is one where I really am opening up the answer. What causes us to be impatient? Yes, sir, Phil. Other drivers. Other drivers. I'm not familiar with that particular issue, but I'm told that there are some people who get frustrated by other drivers. Yes, Mary. Selfishness. Selfishness. And it's always selfishness of others that causes us to be impatient. <laughs> I think we know better. Any other things that cause us to be impatient? The Lord's time. That's a big issue. In fact, of all the things that I talked about over those two weeks when I was sharing my testimony, as I was thinking about this message, I was trying to think back, and I was trying to think, what issue did I struggle with the most in my own heart? And there are a multitude of issues, but probably one of the most difficult things was waiting almost three years from the time I graduated seminary until I became a pastor. That was very hard. I felt like a football player, and the game's going on, and I'm standing on the sideline with a clean uniform, and it's like, put me in, coach. I'm ready to go. And the Lord didn't. So we have all of these issues that make it hard for us to be patient, but here's what the scriptures say. Now, in James chapter 5, 1 through 6, there's a, a real rebuke of unbelieving rich people for their mistreatment of the poor, their abuse of God's people. But now he switches in verse 7, he's talking to God's people. And so we have this backdrop of trials. They had been persecuted, many of them had lost their property, many of them had worked and not been paid. They had a multitude of issues. We know some in the church didn't even have enough food and clothes to live a miserable existence. And we know some of those who didn't have food and clothes were ignored by their own brothers and sisters in the Lord who just said, hey, be warm, be filled. God bless you. I'll pray for you. And they wouldn't even help them. But here's what verse 7 says. Therefore, and it's really in light of everything, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. I'll stop right there. But the clear imperative, and this is what I'm going to start with, is that instruction 
that is unequivocal, that's not conditional. It says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And again, these are people who were already enduring hardship. They didn't have food, some of them. They didn't have clothes, some of them. They didn't have employment, some of them. They were probably from a Jewish background, and one of the things that happened in the early church was that people who were Jewish who came to faith in Christ paid a terrible price. There's a count in Acts where persecution started and they scattered outside of Jerusalem. They just had to run. Obviously, when you're running in that day and age, most people didn't have an opportunity to carry everything with them. They were just scattering. And yet, to this group of people who were under the midst of fierce oppression, James would be patient. And he says it in a loving way, that use of the word brethren... And he doesn't tell them that it's going to end anytime soon. He says, until the coming of the Lord. Now again, in the context of reality and life, we've talked before, and I even addressed it immediately after this last election. Every day that you look at the headlines, you can tell that it seems like America is becoming more and more hostile to Christianity. I originally talked through this five years ago here. I looked at my notes, and it was in January of 2008. And I don't want to overstate things, but it's amazing how much has changed just in that short period of time. Now we have a massive push for gay marriage nationwide. Cases are going through court system that could do that. There is no political party that is primarily only saying don't do it. There were ads out last week with prominent Republicans who were out supporting um, gay marriage. All these things are happening at rapid pace. And I think, whereas I used to believe that perhaps my girls might encounter persecution, I tend to think we may face some persecution. It's not going to be imprisonment. It's not going to be being killed, at least not in America. But to be a believer is going to become increasingly difficult. Jesus said this in John chapter 15. You can just write it down. You don't have to turn there. John chapter 15, verses 18 to 20. He said this, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. We see the same thing taught in 1 Peter 3, 14-17. We would expect... Peter to teach these things since he learned at Jesus' feet. He would have heard Jesus say those original words. 1 Peter 3, 14 17 says this, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. The point is, just live a godly life. So even if people are lying about you in a court of law or in some other venue, you'd be proven innocent. Talk, Paul taught, again, following in the footsteps of Jesus, Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you persecute you, bless and do not curse. So we have enough 
trials in our own lives, just with our families, with our children, with our siblings, with our parents. But we live in a world that increasingly is going to be hostile to us simply because of the fact that we are Christians. Now, there is a simple American response when life gets very difficult and people start pushing you. What do you do when people start pushing you around in America? Push back. Don't let them do that to you. Don't take it. It's the American way. Somebody gives to you, you give back in full measure, and then some so they learn not to mess with you. What's interesting is we live in a society that for many of us, we were taught at an early age, that's what you do. And here's the words of the Apostle James, which is the teaching of the Holy Spirit, in those exact same circumstances. Therefore, be patient. Be patient. Now, patience is hard, and part of the reason is because patience says, I'm going to leave this in God's hand, and I'm not going to pick it up again. I'm not talking about laziness. We all know people who've been lazy, and they claim that they're waiting on the Lord. But in the normal course of things, there are matters that we can't control, and patience is what's required to endure those in a godly way. And the way the word is used here, there's a lot of different expressions and language, but in this context, the patience is talking about not just a resignation to your circumstance, it's talking about how you interact with other people. How you relate to other people when you're interacting, not just you and the Lord and what's going on in your heart, although patience is important there, but it's also in your daily interactions with others. Your response to difficult circumstances to trials, to persecution, the people pushing you, is supposed to be patience. Now, again, I, this is one of those times I'm going to ask a question I don't expect you to answer. This is rhetorical, but I want you to think about this. If people who knew you were all gathered up and they were sat in a room, and the question was asked, is he patient? Is she patient? What would they say about you? That's a little more pressing, and I certainly know that probably would not be on the list of things that I would say about myself. And yet patience isn't something we're supposed to have to struggle with. Now, the command of Scripture is to be patient, but it's a fascinating thing when you look through 1 Corinthians 13. It talks about all the things that love is. And in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, the very first clause, love is patient. Now, we have love because God first loved us. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, so we have the personal presence of God to guide our lives. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So we have everything in our court to make us the most patient people in the world. And yet we live in a society that screams, don't be patient, don't wait. How many of you have ever, well, you've heard it, um, delayed gratification? You know what I'm talking about? If you had somebody wise when you were younger that talked about finances, they might have talked about delayed gratification. Delayed gratification says it's better to wait on something 
and get it at the right time than to have everything now. Whoever runs the financial system of the world made sure that was extinguished from the American lexicon. Because we're taught, just get now. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody. That's why there's credit. That's why people have credit cards. That's why people can do things. But as believers, we have to really examine whether we're patient people. And if we're not patient, we need to heed the exhortations of the scriptures and realize that it's sin and we need to confess it and we need to turn from it. I quite often go to 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 and 15. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 has one of the greatest explanations in a very concise form of how you deal with other believers. It's very pertinent instruction to a pastor or a shepherd. It's pertinent instruction to a parent who's trying to raise a godly child. It's pertinent instruction to anyone who has to interact with other believers. And I often focus on the first part, not because I'm ignorant of the rest of it, but for purposes of what I'm talking about at a given moment, this is what I deal with. And it says, we urge you, brethren, and there's three parts initially, admonish the unwilling. There are certain people who need to be corrected and rebuked. They're out of line. Their behavior is sinful. You have to bring them in line. Number two, encourage the faint-hearted. People who are struggling to survive. People who are struggling to keep their head up. They're supposed to be encouraged by other believers. You're supposed to come alongside them to do that. And finally, help the weak. That means tangibly reaching out to those who just aren't capable of doing things on their own, and you're helping them. So we've got admonish, encourage, and help. But the last part is very instructive to us. It says, be patient with everyone. Let me ask you a question. When you're correcting a, a wayward child, is the first thing that jumps in your head patience? And those of you who have already raised your children, you think about your grandkids... Or you just think about a troublesome co-worker. When people are unruly, it's hard to be patient. But it's also hard to be patient when people are faint-hearted. Because sometimes we just want to say, look, get over it. You can do this. I don't have time. I can barely carry my cross. I can't go back and get your cross. Which is specifically what happens when we get to help the weak. And so the scriptures, knows our, the scriptures know our hearts. And they want us to get to the point where patience isn't an afterthought, it's an initial reaction. Because it characterizes those who love God, it characterizes those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, and it should characterize every one of us. Such that everybody who knows us should be able to say in the context of adjectives that describe our character, they should say, oh, she's patient. There's no question, she's patient. Or he's patient. But this is one of those sins that is easy to overlook because we don't think of it as sin because everybody in America is impatient. You think everybody waiting on the... And the traffic is bad. Go to Disney. See the people waiting in line. You do anything like that. We live in an impatient country and yet we're supposed to be different from the world. Now, part of what makes this a challenge, and there are many other places in the scriptures that tell you to be patient. 
I've just highlighted scriptures enough that I think makes it unequivocal that it's a mandate of the Lord. And God equips us for patience by giving us His Spirit. But James adds this little phrase, until the coming of the Lord. Until the coming of the Lord. You know, again, let's go back and let's think about the people who were being written to. They were in the midst of persecution. They were in the midst of hardship. They were in the midst of the battle against their own personal sin. And they were not instructed, be patient until the trial is over. Be patient until the person changes. Be patient until your circumstances get different. He said, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Now, in a theological sense, the coming of the Lord, I won't read it for, for time's sake, but First Thessalonians 4, 15 and 18 is a, a great picture about the rapture. The Lord's going to come and get His children. Throughout the scripture, it tells us to be looking expectantly because the Lord's going to come for his children. For example, 1 John 2, 28 talks about that as, as believers, that Christ is going to appear. And we want to have the right attitude when he appears. We're supposed to live with an awareness that Jesus Christ could return at any time. The theological term is imminent. We don't know when Christ will return and some people, and the Bible addresses this very issue, but some people can look at Christianity and say, wait a minute. Those things were written to say, expect the Lord to return 2,000 years ago, and the Lord still hasn't returned. Which, of course, the scriptures address by saying, with the Lord, days like a thousand years, or that thousand years is like a day. But we're supposed to know that the Lord is going to return. He's going to come back, and what the writer of the book of James is saying is that as believers you live and you are patient not that you have moments of patience but that your life be characterized by patience until the Lord returns for most most of us that means until we die the Lord can return today I pray he comes back today but the point is this there's never a time where we're allowed to be impatient ever that's not hyperbole. That's not overstatement. That's just what the scriptures are teaching us. And as somebody that spends my life getting impatient with other people, it's convicting. I hope it's convicting enough for me to do something about it. But then James uses an analogy. So we'll go back to the text. And he, he talks about an analogy that would have been common to them in, a, in an agrarian society. It says, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Now, putting this in a context, at that time, there were not teams of scientists working in labs throughout the Midwest, developing all kinds of seeds and other things that were impervious to insects and impervious to drought and impervious to everything else. It was a simple process. You put the seeds in the ground, and then you waited to see if the Lord brought rain. If he brought rain, the stuff would grow. If he didn't bring rain, it wouldn't grow. And guess what? When you put the seed in the ground, they didn't have decades of meteorological data stored on a computer such that they could run simulations and say, hey, there's a likelihood this year that we're going to get rain or not get rain. They only had one choice. Wait. That's it. Is it going to rain? I don't know. Is it not going to rain? I don't know. Is it going to rain at the right time? Because if the rain came at the wrong time, it could destroy crops. 
But here was the point. Even though life is uncertain and you have no way of knowing the outcome, just like the wise farmer just waits, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be patient. He clarifies this in verse 8. He says, You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. And that ultimately is the exhortation of all of us this morning. Is to strengthen our hearts, because we have no ability to control our circumstances. It doesn't take long living to realize that you don't control things. Some people with enough money think they control things, but even then they find out that things are out of control. But as believers, we need to spend our time patiently waiting. Again, that's un-American. You don't patiently wait. You make your reality. You make things occur. But our choice as believers is to be patient, is to wait. Again, the things that we face quite often are far less than what was being faced by the early church. Quite often the things we face are not nearly as significant even as we think they're going to be. I don't know how many times we can work ourselves up into a a frenzy, worried about a particular event, and then the particular event comes and goes, and you go, oh, that's no big deal. Kind of feel silly about losing sleep for that. But I'm going to highlight one final thing that James says that really is all part about being patient. And this deals with the heart attitude. Because any time I teach on something, there's a tendency in my heart that says this, okay, I'm going to try harder. And I'm not suggesting working at holiness is bad. Hear me out. My first thing that I'll do is if I hear that I should be patient and I reflect on my own heart and I realize how impatient I am with Debbie and with my girls and at work, then I say to myself, okay, I'm going to be more patient. And I can almost become so fixated on patience that I lose sight of why I'm being patient. And in the battle of patience, I can take on a negative attitude. I can be grumbling. I can be a little bit irritated for all the sins that I got wrapped up in. I never got hooked on smoking cigarettes. But I've always heard, and I've seen people that try and stop smoking, they get irritable. Because they're trying to stop and they're doing things differently. I think James, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, understood human nature that as soon as you're told you have to do something, once you start the battle, it gets annoying. Because you want to conquer something in two seconds. And so James steps into this void and he says this at verse 9. And I won't go through all of verse 9, I'll just say this. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. In this context, it's talking the idea of a groaning or a sighing, a heavy heart, complaining about the circumstances. And the idea is this. In the midst of somebody enduring their own trials, they lash out at other people and take out their frustrations on them. And in the context of saying one another, he's talking about this happening with believers doing this to other believers. A particular commentator said this, but grumbling, and I'm quoting, but grumbling against those who are close to us is particularly likely to occur when we are under pressure or facing difficult circumstances. We vent pressure from stressful work environment or ill health on our close friends and family. 
face external pressures in life and then we take out our frustrations on those around us. Here's the point that I'm trying to tie together. If you take up the charge of Scripture and you decide to be patient, don't pair it with a grumbling, complaining spirit. Such that you say, look, you are a miserable annoyance, but I'm being patient with you. So stop it. Those don't go together. And I'm not tying them together. James is the one who tied them together. But it comes into this context of not letting the circumstances of life rule us. Of not letting the circumstances of life cause us to lapse into sin. Of not using the various trials and tribulations that we encounter as an excuse for harboring wickedness in our hearts. Again, the idea is that Jesus is standing right at the door. He can come at any moment. Do you want to be found at the moment of Jesus' returns, grumbling and complaining against people for whom Jesus died? None of us do. Ultimately, we've got to control our hearts so that we can live lives that are pleasing to the Lord regardless of our circumstances. Now, the idea that is incumbent in this is that God is watching everything that we're doing. And there are a thousand ways to illustrate it. I probably won't try any of them. But God sees what no one else sees. God sees the heart. This is Sunday school theology. It's true. It's little kids learn this. And the expectation is that we'll be concerned about living for the Lord at all moments, such that we'll want to fight against impatience, such that we want we will not want to be those who are complaining about everything. And this idea of Jesus standing right at the door is supposed to sober us. There's a lot of things you could think in terms of why don't we know when Christ will return? Jesus said no one knows the hour of the day. No one knows exactly when the Lord's going to return. And there's a sense in which life would be a lot easier if we knew. If I knew the Lord was going to return on April 15th, I'd probably live with a great deal of urgency. I'd still pay my taxes, by the way. That's not the point of saying April 15th. But I'd live with a great sense of urgency. I think we all would. If I knew that the Lord was going to return at the end of 2013 and I really knew it because it was real and the scripture said it I think we would be a phenomenally different people I think we'd prioritize things differently I think we'd look at our money differently I think we would look at our kids and our wives and our husbands and our family and our parents and everyone around us differently I think we'd approach our work differently I think we'd approach church differently I think we would approach life differently and what James is saying is live that way anyway. And even as I say it, I realize how impossible it is to do. Ephesians 4, 1. I'm going to actually read Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. As are many other places in Scripture is a snapshot. If you wanted to learn 
what should my life look like? There are a lot of scriptures that I can tell you to memorize. This wouldn't be a bad one to memorize. Paul doesn't say anything unique here. It's not as though something he says here is different than a lot of other scripture. Jesus says things like this. You even find phrases like this in the Old Testament. But this is a good snapshot of everything I'm trying to teach this morning. It's a a summary of what James says. It's a summary of what we should be doing. Ephesians 4.1 says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. It's emphatic. He's pleading. He's exhorting. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Well, what would that look like, Paul? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When I covered this five years ago, I read a poem, and I'm going to read it again. There are different commentators that I come to really appreciate. I appreciate how they handle the Scripture. I appreciate their attitude when I read and I I listen to what they say. I appreciate their hearts. But this commentator, I don't even know if the poem was original to him. I don't have have the commentator's name. It's D. Edmund Hebert. I don't think he's alive anymore. Um, Could be wrong. And I don't know if he wrote the poem or if I just, or if he attributed it to somebody else. But it says this, and it's talking about life, and it's a great summary. It says, To walk above with saints we love, that will indeed be glory. To walk below with saints we know, well, that's another story. That really is the challenge for us. To walk in love with those around us. Knowing that love is patient. And that's what we're called to be. So I would encourage you, as you think through where you are in life, if you're married, ask your spouse whether they think you're patient. I would encourage you to ask them even if you think you already know the answer. Because if you're like me, there are many times where you think, well, I need to work in this area. And yet the reality is I don't know the half of it. So I would encourage you, ask somebody that knows you well, am I a patient person? And if you're answering that question, don't answer it in relation to your own impatience. Answer it in terms of whether you really think they're being patient or not. And then commit before the Lord to develop this fruit of the Spirit that is so badly needed in the midst of a lost and dying world. So, let me close this with a word of prayer and we will be done for this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us live different. I pray that you'd help us live different than we've been living. I pray that you would help us live different than the world around us lives. Lord, we are an impatient people. We're not uniquely impatient as Americans. Your scriptures were written long before the country of America even existed. And your scriptures acknowledged then that patience was a missing but needed virtue. 
Lord, I pray that you would slow down our hearts and allow us to honestly examine whether we reflect this fruit of the Spirit. Lord, you bring for your own purposes and for our good trials into our lives. Lord, as we share prayer requests, as we talk to one another, as we share burdens with each other, it becomes evident that all of us face trials exactly as you said would be the case in your word. And Lord, far too often our response to those trials is not to react patiently. Lord, patience doesn't exist by itself. We need to live well-rounded lives that reflect all of the fruit of the Spirit of the Lord. But I pray this area we would begin to work so that it will change the way we respond to the ups and downs of life. Lord, I pray that one day we would be able to be held up as examples of godly endurance. We have a long way to go, Lord, and we trust that you'll bring us to where you want us to be. We pray that you'll give us eyes to see sin as it resides and hides in our heart for what it really is, and that you'll give us a desire to root it out and kill it so that we can live more for your glory. We ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.